two sharper items. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, March 9th, we're studying Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Jesus speaks to the crowds accompanying him in order to open their eyes to the true nature of being his disciple. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Wheatfelt. Pastor Wheatfelt serves as the Director of Admissions and the Director of the Christ Academy Program at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor Wheatfelt, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you very much, Pastor Apple. It's great to be with you again. Pastor Wheatfelt, how are things going there at the seminary? Got any upcoming events that we need to know about? Yeah, we do. Yeah, things are going very well. Um, the students are on their quarter break right now, so they'll be gone for uh, two weeks. And uh, when they come back, though, we will be having our um, spring prayerfully consider visit. Uh, so for any men that might be interested in learning more about uh, the pastoral ministry and women looking into uh, possible deaconess service, uh, that is going to be uh, the March 17th through the 19th here on our campus. You can register for that event on our website. We also are still uh, having registrations come in for our summer Christ Academy program, our high school program, the uh, Timothy School for Boys and the Phoebe School for Girls. And uh, that happens then the last two weeks of June, June uh, the 20th through July the 1st. And uh, again, uh, as I've talked about before, it's a two-week-long experience for high school boys and girls interested in learning more about what the seminary does and looking at possible service in the church. So more information is at our website, ctsfw.edu. That's excellent, Pastor Wheatfelt. God's blessings on those upcoming events. Thank you. So we're, we are looking at Luke 14, 25 to 35, the end of this chapter. What should we know about Luke, his gospel, where we've been leading into this text? So Luke's gospel, uh, it's, it, frankly, it's, it's one of my, it, uh, and it's a later gospel, it's, but it's one of my favorites because Luke adds a lot of neat details uh, to his gospel that um, the other gospels kind of just breeze over. There's a handful of parables, handful of miracles that uh, Luke t- tackles that uh, the others don't. Um, but here in uh, what we're looking at uh, today, um, when Jesus comes down the mountain of transfiguration, uh, something uh, that you know two weeks ago we celebrated in, in church, and uh, now we uh, are beginning our trod towards Jerusalem uh, for Jesus's, uh, Jesus's crucifixion on Good Friday. Uh, and I should back up just a little bit before when he uh, institutes the Lord's Supper on Monday, Thursday, he is crucified Good Friday, lays in the tomb, Holy Saturday and rises then on Easter Sunday. Jesus also makes a similar kind of transition in his ministry. He comes down the Mount of Transfiguration. He's rejected uh, by the Samaritan, the, uh, by Samaria, the Samaritans uh, in uh, the end of 
uh, Luke chapter nine, and then he begins himself to uh, to focus on Jerusalem. He the t- the way the text talks about it in in uh, verse fifty one is he sets his face towards Jer- Jerusalem, and it's a really neat kind of turn of phrase, but it's also very distinct that this is now what the mission is going to be. This is where we are going. And this is what Jesus has come to do and what he's going to do for us as his people. And so he, he, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. He begins to teach, teaching on mercy, on worship, on prayer, on persecution, on possessions, on, on hypocrisy, uh, very alliterative there. Um, and then in, uh, chapters 13 and 14, he begins his end times teaching. And uh, here, uh, as as we're diving into to 14 today, um, he begins now some, to use uh, parables in these teaching. And specifically today, uh, we've got what, uh, what your Bible, your ESV Bible would call the cost of discipleship and, uh, and, and some teaching on salt. And, uh, it's, it's quite interesting to, 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 to ponder this whole, you know, what, what is, uh, the pledge? What is the, what the covenant, if you will, uh, towards uh between that the disciple the one who follows and their master and what is the cost of that what is what is the contract almost between and what 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 is going to be going on here um dr arthur just one of our professors here writes a commentary on luke and uh he specifically uses the conditions as opposed to cost the conditions of discipleship um highlighting the fact that there is um, there there is stuff that goes on within the life of the disciple, and then uh, that it's not just a free life anymore, but that because uh, you are now yoked to the master, uh, that there are things that are going to happen because you live in a world that hates your master. Mm-hmm. So even with that, you know, and I I like the idea of the conditions of discipleship as opposed to the cost of discipleship. It it adds another flavor to think about, to to consider and ponder as we we think about this text. But even even with both of those, cost of discipleship, conditions of discipleship, how how does that square up with, you know, the, the foundational teaching of the scriptures that we are saved by God's grace alone, and we're talking about costs or conditions, how do those two things go together? Yeah, thanks for that. That's a, that's that's a, a really good point to bring up, and something that uh, I think you know bears further clarification, um, uh, so that we don't become legalists uh, in 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 thinking that we are the ones doing the work within holding on to the master. Um, you know, I think you know we speak specifically, or you know, you think about um, you know Matthew when he when he when when Jesus is talking about. Um, being yoked to the Lord. It's the Lord who is the one carrying us through all things. Uh, it's, it's, it's a yoking that happens in our baptisms where Christ, our Lord, um, gives to us his holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, takes on all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of the punishment that we deserve, and then dies for them, for us, as pure and utter 
gift. And so the life that we now have as, as, as disciples, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ is a life of pure gift. It is not us justifying ourselves. No, it is Christ who has already justified us, who has already made us righteous uh, in the eyes of God. And uh, it is it is Christ who, who stands in our stead and by our side the whole way through doing the doing, if you will, uh, and is the one who really carries us all all the way through so that whereas you might uh, talking about uh, being a disciple where you might be the one doing the work, it's actually Christ doing the work through you and is the one who has already forgiven you, has already made you righteous, has already justified uh, you before the father. You simply are uh, acting out doing doing the doing the work, but he is the one behind the scenes uh, doing doing the doing the doing the actual work. Luther, uh, when he he speaks in regard to vocation, uh, he is quite uh, you know brilliant in this regard. It's not, uh, uh, and I think he helps us in many ways wrap our mind around the fact that the good works that we do are not our doing, but Christ's doing. He uses this example of a milkmaid. It, it might be the hands of the milkmaid, but it is the it is God who is hidden in the hands of the milkmaid, um, taking care, milking the cow in order so that the people, um, her family included, might be able to eat and uh, eat, eat butter and cheese and drink milk uh, and the like and be able to have the substance, uh, sustenance that they need uh, for this life. So um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not us doing the work in this. It is Christ who is behind the scenes doing all things, giving us strength through his Holy Spirit that we've received in baptism to enliven and strengthen our faith in order that we may carry on um, and, 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 and continue in these good works. Right. I, I like the way that you've you've laid that out, Pastor Wheatfeld, and particularly the image of the yoke. And as as Matthew gives it to us in Matthew eleven of what it means to be yoked to Jesus, not that we you know kind of pull together with him, but that he pulls us, he carries mm-hmm. us, and and that being a, a gift of complete grace, all his doing. And then maybe then to tie this section of Luke fourteen into it is that that doing of Jesus influences absolutely every aspect of our life. It, it's a, a, to, a, a full thing. I've, tell me what you think of this. I've heard this. I've heard it put this way. I'm not sure where I, where I heard this, but I, I think that it's, it's helpful that, that on the one hand, you know, what does it cost, if I can use that language, what does it cost to be a disciple of Jesus? On the one hand, it's, it's nothing because mm-hmm. he pays the price. He does all of it. And at the same time, what does it cost to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, everything. He he takes your whole life and makes it his own. What I I found that helpful. What do you think of that? I find that very helpful as well. Um, and I've heard I've heard it expressed in similar ways. Um, also, I think it is it Dietrich Bonhoeffer that writes on uh, the cost of discipleship. Um, I think so. And, and I think so. I think I mean, and I know in the uh, he in, in that writing he he expresses it in a in a very prolific way, you know, that I think holds the test of time um, because you think about, you know, the, the, you know, whether you want to call it persecution, soft persecution, whatever, like the lack of tolerance that Christianity is experiencing. um, He asks here in the United States, but even more so throughout the world, um, it it does, it, it, it is everything. It costs us 
everything. But at the end of the day, um, you know, giving our lives is nothing because the, the reward, what Christ has already given to us is so much more um, important and valuable than what we could ever experience or things we could ever do um, in, in, in this life. We really have been, I mean, the good life is contrary to the life that we uh, think about that people are, live nowadays. You know, we think of when we think about the good life in this world, it's Robin Leach, it's ma- massive homes, it's lots of money, it's lots of food, it's lots of fun, it's lots of all sorts of different pleasurable things that are only pleasurable to the eyes and to the, to the, to the senses. But the good life for the Christian is a life that is lived in Christ for Christ and through Christ. And in that we receive, I mean, grace upon grace and uh, manifold graces that that we could not ever do of our own accord. It's Christ who is constantly gifting to us and for us um, all the days of our lives. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's just a helpful thing to, to have in our minds as we read the text we've got for today, some challenging words to be sure, some of the, the harder words of Jesus within the gospel, but to have that that picture of what Christ gives as the good life above all else, and mm-hmm. that being entirely his gift, I think is so helpful. And just not to get too far afield, but just as a looking forward a little bit, in the coming chapter, it's going to very, Jesus is very much going to emphasize the matter of grace in bringing his lost sheep, his lost people home to himself. And we want to hold that together with the words we're going to read today. So with no further ado, let's take a look at the text. We're in Luke 14, verses 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's our text for today. That's Luke 14, verses 25 to 35. So, Pastor Wheatfelt, before we get into the, the words of Jesus, I think it's important to notice the audience changes. In the previous part of this chapter, Luke, or Jesus has been talking primarily to Pharisees he's eating with and the guests who are there. Now the audience changes to great crowds accompanying Jesus. How does, how does that affect our reading of this text? So Jesus isn't uh, like in many, I mean, I think one of the things that I don't think 
um, and I've, I've caught myself doing this, um, assuming that Jesus is always speaking to everyone, um, and, and it, it, at least uh, assuming Jesus is speaking to everyone, um, like as if he's speaking uh, in an oratory fashion to great crowds all the time. Jesus right. is not doing that. Jesus is speaking to particular people and saying things to particular people at particular times. And it is very important for us to note that. Uh, will it change how um, – we see the text or how that he, he is speaking to us today. Absolutely not. But it is important to note that, you know, okay, he is, he, he's coming down very hard on the law. Why? Because he's speaking to people who need to hear the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, those who are trying to catch him in what he's doing. And so, yeah, as, as, as you said, pastor Oppel, he, he he's moved now from speaking to smaller groups to the text sh- makes this cool shift uh, in 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. Uh, and so it, it's one thing I th- Luke is noting uh, the size of the group. This is, this is not just some small exclusive fair uh, party with the Pharisees. Um, this isn't one person or two persons or uh, that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. No great crowds um, are following Jesus or walking alongside Jesus. The, um, the, I, I appreciate that word accompanied him. Um, it's, you know, they're, they're, yes, they're following, but it's there. It's, it gives this kind of feeling like they're walk, like they're walking hand in hand with him that neither is he there are neither are they leading him nor is he leading them. They're in this together. And, um, Another another way of of, of of translating that accompanied word, um, I uh, again, Doctor Arthur Just, um, t- uh, uh, he translates that as journeyed, uh, and this the crowd, a great crowd, now journeyed with him, and he turns to them, and then he begins speaking, um, and it's like they're walking, 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 and then oh, I want to say something to you. This is what what the good life is all about. And he dives into 27 talking about father and mother and brother and sister and wife and all of all of that to those people who are not necessarily disciples yet, but are walking alongside of him. I like I think I think it is very important to note that it's not that they're following him as if he, they were already disciples, but that they are walking alongside of him. Yeah, that, that walking with him, walking alongside of him language. And I think that the translation that Dr. Just gives of journeying ties in very nicely with the the huge transition that, that he pointed out when I had a conversation with him, you know, about Jesus in 951 when he sets his face toward mm-hmm. Jerusalem and he starts his journey to Jerusalem. A big reminder there in the context of, okay, you're journeying with Jesus. Well, where are you going? Where is yeah. he going? And what does that mean for your journey as well? And that's precisely what he lays out to these people who, again, as you said, are not yet disciples, right? The disciples in Luke, it's a pretty large group. That word often refers to more than just the 12 mm-hmm. in the gospel of Luke. So, But these are crowds. These are people who are hanging around with Jesus, walking with him, but aren't necessarily following him, maybe aren't completely on board with everything that he's saying. And Jesus wants them to be. So he's going to say, hey, look, this is what it means. This is the journey we're taking. If you want to keep coming with me, if you want to be my disciple, 
here's what it entails. And, and it's pretty harsh. He doesn't, he doesn't hold anything back. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, and he lists several, what the word I think that, that really catches most of us off, off guard on the first read is the word hate. So what, yeah. what is Jesus saying here? Yeah. So, um, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant kind of, um, rabbitic way of talking about, um, about, about this and and many, in many ways teaching, um, Jesus, we can't forget follows in the same line as the, as the Israelite Hebrew rabbis and does things that are, and teaches in ways that kind of, um, you know, leave us wondering sometimes and how he's speaking. Uh, so looking into the context and uh, trying to understand who he is and how he teaches is always is always something that one should do. And, and uh, you know, I fall. Uh, we, we, we can't read this in um, in any sort of like uh, Americanized, uh, Western Europeanized eyes. We have to read it in the context of what is what is he actually who is he? Who is Jesus? And what is he saying? Because that all matters. So um, he's using a simple way of teaching in Hebrew idiom. That is one thing versus another thing. And um, he, what he's doing is highlighting that um, if you love one thing, um, then you're going to hate the other. Um, not that you're going to uh, wish, you know, as Luther would say, anybody who hates his, his brother in his heart uh, is guilty of murdering him. Not he's not. That's a that's a European way of of thinking about hate. Um, Jesus is saying, though, on the other side, um, if you the one who you love is the one who you're going to be all the more drawn to um, versus the one you hate is the one you love less. Um, and so that's the idiom there. He, he, the one who you hate is the one you simply love less than the other that you love more. And he's saying you, you need to, you need to love less your father and your mother, your husband, your wife, your brothers, your sisters, even your own self. In order to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's about turning the love all the way to uh, 10 um, and the love for everyone else less than that. Uh, and so because of that, you, you, you in a sense, you, you must learn to love them less than loving the Lord your God. So that's that, I think that's what 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 um what 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 Luke is doing what Jesus is doing here with that. Right in in our context the words love and hate are often very much attached to emotions mm -hmm. rather than actions. And that that I think is one of the things that as you said we need to overcome as we read a text like this that when Jesus says hating all these family members and even your own self isn't so much about the emotion as it is about the, and I, I, I like to put it in the action language of choice, you know, which, which do you choose when, when push comes to shove, do you choose the Lord and, and following him or do you choose family and, and following them? And, and when, when it comes to it, the choice is, is quite clear. There's only one. You must choose God above all else. That's, I mean, that, that's one, one way I, I've tried to, to maybe make the language fit a little bit better with us so that it becomes less about the emotions attached mm -hmm. to it 
and a lot more about the the way that my life reflects these things. Another, you know, sometimes language of priority is another another way I think to to get around these or to get around the the word. I shouldn't say get around to help us understand better <laughs> yeah. the word hate, so that it's not so much about the emotion, the feeling, but about where 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 are my actions taking me? Are they taking me toward family? Or are they taking me toward the Lord? And particularly when those two things stand apart, because it's not, we should say this, it's not like Jesus is overthrowing the fourth commandment here, the honor father and mother, but he is putting it, the fourth commandment in its place Mm -hmm. behind commandments one, two, three, teaching us to love God above all else. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, he, I think that's a very good way of thinking about it, that he simply order he's as Jesus has come to do, he is putting all things back in order. And this prioritization, uh, this kind of reworking um, and and relaying things out the way that they're supposed to be seen and experienced is is exactly what Jesus has come to do to to turn our world on its head and to show us the way that the world really is supposed to work and doesn't work this way because of sin. Yeah, and and when you look at what Jesus has been teaching, even even since that key moment in chapter nine where he sets his face toward Jerusalem, this isn't the first time that he's used language similar to this. You know, right after he turned his face toward Jerusalem, you had people coming to Jesus asking to follow him, and he said, "Well, you know, let the dead bury their own dead. You know, don't put your hand to the plow and then look back." In, in chapter 12, he talked about the division that he's come to bring and how that division extends even into families. And here again, it is very similar. And so, you know, th- certainly the word hate does strike us, but then also the object that he puts behind it. Wait a second, Jesus, you want me to choose you over even my family, the most important things that you've given me, the most important people you've given me in this life? That, I mean, I, I think... It's even in our world today, those words, the the group that he says, hate X, that is just as shocking even as the word hate. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it is. And I think, yeah, it's just, it's so jarring uh, to hear, you know, the Lord in, 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 uh, in any way say, you know, hate, hate this, because he says in, in so many other places, you know, you know, how the evils of hate. Um, and, 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 and all of that. So it's very, it's just jarring until you take a step back and you don't approach it, um, from an emotional lens, um, from looking at these love and hate as emotions, but rather as actions. That's right. Yeah. And, and then, you know, pairing that with what Jesus says about say, loving your enemies, you know, mm-hmm. go back to the sermon on the plane. So if I, I find myself with father, mother, wife, children, etc., as my enemies because they do not follow Christ. Well, I'm not going to choose them. That's being a disciple. But at the same time, I am going to show love to them. I'm going to pray for them, to do good for them, all those things that Jesus has instructed. And so, yeah, holding these things together is, is really important so that we understand in the context what Jesus is saying about being his disciple. We're going to keep talking about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. We're talking Luke 14 with Pastor Matt Wheatfelt. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, March 9th. We're studying Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35 with Pastor Matt Wheatfelt. He serves as Director of Admissions and the Director of the Christ Academy Program at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor Wheatfelt, prior to the break, we are talking about the shocking language Jesus uses about being his disciple, hating father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even your own self to be his disciple, to make that choice, placing Jesus first— Then Jesus speaks again about someone else who cannot be his disciple. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be his own Jesus disciple. I suppose there's really two things there, bearing the cross and then not coming with Jesus, but coming after Jesus. What what is this language telling us? In many ways, this is um, simply foreshadowing. Um, what is going to happen to Jesus? We've 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 said multiple times that he has set his face towards Jerusalem, and what is going to happen in Jerusalem? Uh, it, it, it it seems, I mean, for for us Christians, it kind of smacks us in the face. Like obviously he's speaking about that, but if you think about the the disciples and those others following him at this time, the crucifixion hasn't happened. It must have been just absolutely jarring. There are there's a there there are a handful of scholars that w- will say you know this could have easily been Jesus walking along the roadside, and then there's a crucifixion actually happening um, along the roadside as well. And so he's he's stopping um, because they see the per like the actual physicalness of what is going on, um, and they may not know that that's actually happening, but. Uh, they that the, the, this is going to happen to Jesus, but they see it with their own eyes and they see, oh, this could, you know, following Jesus could lead to death. But I think it more more frankly is a foreshadowing of Jesus's own death that we must bear our own cross. That is the the trials the tribulations the the pains the sorrows of this world and come after him who is the crucified one it doesn't say that we must go first but that we are simply falling in a line of witnesses of martyrs um, that that have followed Jesus throughout the course of history carrying our own crosses but really our cross uh, is very light because he has already carried the heavy burden for us. We simply live out these things. They actually have no bearing though on where we'll spend our eternity because Christ has already borne all sin, all punishment, all death. And so that when we die, um, we die not to our crosses, 
uh, but, but we, we die in his holy cross so that our lives are wrapped up in his holy and divine life. And we are, we, 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 we die in, into him and have the promise of what he has, he has given us that is eternal life, uh, a resur- and a resurrection like his, uh, so that we fear the, the, the grave no more than we fear going to sleep at night, knowing that we're going to, we're going to wake up and that all is, all is going to be well. And that he is, he is the one carrying us along all of our days throughout all the things that we go through. Imagining Jesus speaking these words where maybe a crucifixion is literally happening in the background, I think, you know, opens opens our eyes a little bit to understand some of the shock of this language to the crowds listening to Jesus to talk about carrying a cross is to talk about carrying a tool of execution, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we uh, we see crosses so regularly that sometimes perhaps we forget the shock of the of the cross, the scandal of the cross, as, as Paul speaks about it. That, that would have very much been in view here. But as you said, what, what's going to make this image complete is what, what comes later in the gospel where Jesus carries his cross, goes to his cross, and then through that, you know, the cross becomes a, a tree of life. And actually, even though it, it was this horrible method of execution, it becomes for us a, a thing of beauty, a tree of life for us because of what Christ has done. And, and yeah, that's what he's calling them to here. It's a shocking thing, but it is, as you've said several times today, this is actually the good life, is to follow after Jesus. Now, he uses two images, and this is where the language of cost of discipleship starts to come into view, particularly with this first image. He first compares the matter of following following him as building a tower. So so take it's a, maybe a mini parable of sorts. Take us into some of the details that Jesus speaks when he talks about building a tower. And I like how you said that. I think both of these are mini parables uh, that he's he's laying out for the people. And you know, I think in many places the parables um, are, are are there's some truth to it. So is there is there a situation where this actually happened to someone? But the first one is the building of a tower. Um, does not a person uh, now paraphrasing what Jesus said sit down first and count out the cost? Jesus says and whether there's enough to actually build it instead of just going whole hog at it. Again, paraphrasing Jesus, um, uh, and whole hog at it, and build as much as they can, and then they are left with a partially built tower, and people mock him for it because he did not think through how and if he had enough to be able to complete the task. And so, you know, it, I think you know a tower is it, it, it isn't some sort of little structure. It is a it is a substantial structure. It's a structure that is meant to endure the tests of time. A structure that, in many ways, people are going to to see for for maybe miles around um, and know that this person built this and in uh, a half baked idea only was had en- had barely enough to to well not enough to actually complete the task, uh, and so. It 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 it's simply then just yeah, um, trying to just lay out knowing what things are for us, knowing how things will go, and not just diving into it and um and 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 realizing oh this isn't there isn't enough here 
to actually finish finish the task. And then the second one um, uh, going uh, is 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 uh, a king going into battle. Um, going to fight another king, does he not first sit down and think through what it what it's going to cost him uh, to actually wage war? And uh, if he comes with, um, and I love I love this, if he comes with a with with a with a group of ten thousand uh, to meet one who has twenty thousand, twice what he he has, will he not send a delegation to offer up terms of peace? How can we come to this peaceably so that I'm I'm not just slaughtered, as opposed to um, you know going into battle and then just waging war and realizing in the midst. Oh no! What have I done? We, there's not enough here to. There's not enough of my men to actually complete this task. With these two images, you know, the building of a tower and the the king going out to war, is there is there something within each image that that invites further uh, interpretation? I guess what what I mean by that, you know, on the one hand, both of these pictures imagine a situation in which something gets started. And it's not completed, and there's this there's this shame entailed in both, you mm-hmm. know, which I think fits nicely with some of the honor and shame language that was being used in the previous section of Luke 14. So, on the one hand, they're they're the same in that sense, but is there something about the the building of a tower that is, you know, has something to say about Christian discipleship, and also then the the waging of a war that you see what I'm asking? Like with those images, is there something specific in each one, or is it more just two ways of saying the same thing? So with with the building of the tower, I think the thing to highlight is the time and dedication that it takes. It's not just a simple, you know, you're not you're not just throwing up a tent to to put something uh, to, to to move to be to live a nomadic life. It it takes time and takes dedication and takes um, know how and will because this tower is going to stand the test of time. Uh, whereas with the um, with 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 the army, um, you know, I th- what I think what I think Luke is trying to get at is um, that we're not just you know there's not just a, a a compromise that is happening here, but it's actually trying to sit down and determine how life is going and how life is going to be lived if life is going to be continued to be lived and to make sure that if this battle goes forth that there will be success uh in the end one way or another that you live to you you survive to live another day uh and um but that both of these i think holding them together um this is not just this is not just um, life, but it is it is life into eternity. It's the finishing of a task. And that finishing of a task is the finishing of our lives and finishing our lives and keeping the faith um, and and holding on to the course and, and and enduring all things until the end when Christ will call us home to be, um, there with him for eternity, and so with the first, uh, you know, finishing the towers, finishing the task, completing one's course, and keeping the faith. With the second, it's about making wise decisions uh, and 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 taking a look at reality and saying, you know what, I am an enemy in, of 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 the world, 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know where my eternity though is going to be held and how that, how that is actually, uh, going to work itself out on my behalf, uh, for that, that Christ does for me. So with, with both of these, that view toward the end, the, the finished product, whether that's the, the tower that stands the test of time, or on the other hand, the, the outcome of the war that ends with victory, then, I mean, looking forward to those things, how, how do I accomplish that becomes the question. How do I make those wise decisions? How do I you know, build this tower that stands the test of time? And maybe to, to try to, to tie some of this together and then also to, to go back to the toward the beginning of our conversation that this is something that Christ does for us. I mean, you think about how, how will I build this tower or what's the foundation? Well, that that's Christ. He's the foundation of this and, and only him. And if I try to build the tower based on say the love of my earthly family or my own life and, and abilities, or if I try to build this tower apart from following Christ, it, it will fail. If I try to, to win this war, fight this battle, you know, to try to defeat the devil on my own with only the help of my earthly family or, or apart from following Christ and carrying the cross, then, then I will fail. It's only, only in him that any of this succeeds or lasts or stands the test of time. Because, you know, I mean, I think that the reason I I say that is because on the one hand, Jesus has these crowds around him who are walking with him. He wants them to be his disciples, Mm -hmm it almost sounds like, well, man, that, that sounds really discouraging, Jesus. I don't know if I want to to do that now that I've counted the cost, but that, I don't think that's the force. <laughs> I, I think the force is, you know, he's saying to them, look, you want to be my disciple. Good. The only way that that's going to happen is if you follow me, he's the exactly. way he alone. Exactly. I mean, he is, he is the only way to life and life abundantly. He is the only way that, leads to um, not death that leads to life that le- that lasts forever and in uh, without him without him um, there is nothing and it's only it's hopelessness it's shame it's it's misery it's scorn it's all those things uh, but he he takes what is not perfect and makes it perfect in himself in order that, um, he that, that we might live in him and, and, and have that full forgiveness and, and self, promise of salvation and, and, and hope and life and everything good uh, solely in him. It's so easy, you know, for 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 the new Christian to get excited and and, 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 and be ready to go. But it's you know, life is lived in the crosshairs of the devil where he is constantly trying to move you away from Christ where he's constantly trying to destroy your faith, destroy those people around you, um, destroy everything good. But Christ, what we have to remember is Christ has already won the, the victory for us. And if we, even if we experience hardships, life is just because we experience hardships, which one should expect as a disciple of Christ, one should expect hardship. One should expect to have to lay down everything, give everything up uh, for Christ, because that's what it is. That's what that's what duty the, the duty has been called for us to do to lay all those things down. It's 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 it, it that that's where life is lived in its fullest. 
it, you, know, you mentioned mentioned earlier you, the new Christian and how how we might approach these things as a new Christian, which which brings to my mind the matter the the parable that Jesus tells about the sower. So if I could mix another metaphor in, into the matter here, with where you know, Jesus he he talks about the seed, the word of God being sown on the four different types of soil. And it's almost like what he's doing here then is doing a little bit of tilling of, of some of that soil, some of that rocky soil or the, the soil with the weeds, where you've got these other things in the soil that would choke the word of God. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like Jesus here is is doing that work of tilling, getting rid of those rocks, pulling out the weeds, you know, letting letting these people who would be his disciples potentially know what what that life entails that so that they they go into it with eyes open. And, and recognizing that this actually is the good life. Following Jesus is actually to be desired above all else. All these other things may seem good and they may seem to offer success, but the only good life is the life of following Jesus as his disciple. Absolutely. It's the only, it's the only way to good life. It's the only view of good life because you're going to have, you're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulations. You're going to have crosses. But if you have one who has already endured the cross for you and on your behalf, those those trials, those tribulations, those crosses don't don't matter at all because they've already been won for you by Christ. In verse 33, then, Jesus kind of wraps up, at least the, there's a section break in the ESV. We can talk about maybe whether or not it continues. But, you know, he, he goes back to that language about who cannot be his disciple. And he says here that any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be his disciple. So we've talked about family. We've talked about cross-carrying. Now we're talking about possessions. What's, what's the point Jesus is making here? So, yeah, uh, being a disciple means that one— has to be ready. Not that you have not that you're going to have to give everything up, but you have to be ready to give everything up. Um, and so in, 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 in being ready to give everything up, it's, it's, it's knowing that if, when that day comes, one does it willingly, one does it through the eyes of faith, that this is what the master is called and that there's something so much better for you than things better than earthly possessions for you. There's a life waiting for you. Um, and at the end of the day, we're all going to have to give it up anyway. Yeah. <laughs> one way or another, you, yeah. you're going to give it up. Um, so are you, give it up, give it up now, or are you going to hold, you know, with cold dead hands onto those things and not give them up, but give them up to eternity. Uh, that is, yeah. you know, dying with those things, but, and then going to hell with them. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the parable of the rich fool from back in, in chapter 12 of Luke was coming to my mind as you were yeah. talking there. And you, you, you went exactly there. One way or another, those things are going to be gone. So don't don't try to hold on to them now as if somehow that's going to help you build this tower or to or to win the war that, that will last. You know, I mean, what's going to last again? It's not going to be these possessions. They're going to be gone one day anyway. So let your treasure be in Christ, you be rich toward God, as Jesus would say previously. So, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how all of this is really, you know, fitting together. All this teaching that Jesus is doing on the journey ties together, pointing these crowds toward true life in Himself. Now, then, Jesus moves on to another image. He starts talking about salt, which we, I think, we're familiar with from other other parts of the Gospels. Here, he says, "Salt is good," and he says, "But if salt loses its taste, you can't really restore its saltiness, and it's no good." What's the 
What What's the comparison with salt? Why does Jesus talk about discipleship and salt together? So I think Jesus does. Jesus holds the two together uh, because in, in many ways, the taste is, is, is faith. Uh, the taste in salt is faith and you can have salt without saltiness as much as you can have a person without faith. It, there is, I mean, in the eye, there is no purpose. There is no, there is no point. Yes, it can be there, but what is it good for? It's good for, it's not good for them. It's not good for 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 you. Uh, it's only be it's only good enough to be thrown in onto the soil or to onto the manure pile, uh, and to be thrown thrown. I mean, it's it, it, it's just there to be thrown away. And uh, you know, I I couldn't help but draw the comparison to um, um, especially because of the he who has ears let him hear uh, part at the end to the worthless servant in Matthew chapter 25 that um, is thrown out of the banquet hall uh, um, is, is because he wouldn't put on the garment. And, you know, the master asks, how did you friend, how did you get in here? Um, and uh, he, he, without, without a wedding garment on and he's then thrown out and uh, where, where there is weeping and gnashing. And then it concludes he who his ears, let him hear. Um, I, you know, it, I think the two of them do go together um, that, you know, we you don't enter into the kingdom on your own accord, on your own account, and you can't enter without having the saltiness of faith uh, as well. Um, that it, they're, they, a servant that is disobedient and trying to make it on their own is, is good for nothing. Salt without saltiness is good for nothing. And the two the two meet perfectly. It, it strikes me, and just I'm looking ahead briefly here, but it strikes me that after this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There are those that hear, it, and it's not perhaps the groups that we were expecting. You know, mm-hmm. the Pharisees and the scribes are going to grumble, and it's going to be tax collectors and sinners who hear these words in faith, and and they are the ones who have counted the cost. They've come to Jesus as the one who can give them these things. And I mean, it's just, it's striking how that, you know, these things go together, as you said, and, and who are the ones in danger of being thrown away in the context of Luke's gospel? It's the, it's the scribes and Pharisees, those ones Jesus had spent the good part of the first part of Luke 14 with. They're the ones now that are, are being, you know, are in the danger of, of being thrown out as unsalty salt. And it's going to be the tax collectors and sinners who have these ears to hear, who are that good soil that Jesus has made so that the word of God is, is planted there and grows and produces fruit. It's, it's quite striking, again, just to see how these things are are laid out. I think you said at the beginning, you know, sometimes Luke brings out these different nuances that you don't always see in the other Gospels. And I think that's that's one of them that I'm seeing right mm-hmm. here. So what a, what a fantastic text here today, Pastor Wheatfield. we got about four minutes or so. You know, again, hard words of Jesus at, and ones that we do need to hear and take quite seriously, help us to, to wrap them up, take those words seriously and, and show us the good news, the gospel that's here at the end of Luke 14. So uh, these are hard words. These are hard words. Um, they're hard words for us. They're hard words for the world. They're impossible words for us to complete ourselves. Discipleship is not easy. I mean, that's got to be said right out of the gate. I think it's why as Christians uh, and as Lutheran Christians specifically, why, um, you know, we do a rite of confirmation. 
um, we, we where we say, you know, will you hold on to this faith even to the point of death, uh, and without throw and even under threat of persecution, not throw it away. It is not easy because we have a master, we have a Lord, we have Jesus who is hated by the world, who is reviled, who is who 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 the devil wants. N- to do anything in his power to move more and more people away. I mean, the the cross is a scandal. Uh, as you said earlier, the cross is a scandal. It is not attractive. It's not pretty until you see it through the eyes of faith. And the eyes of faith see the beauty there. The eyes of faith see the pure gift that is given there and how that how the cross is the only way and he who dies on the cross, the crucified one, Jesus Christ, our Lord is the only way that we could possibly live the good life and a life that is abundant, a life that is full, a life that is free and giving a life that is worth anything um, because it's not a life of this world. It's a life of the world to come and a life of uh, a life that is completely and utterly giving of itself. And how that all works together um, is exactly what is what should be important to us and where we should set our priorities and how we should order our days um, as disciples, not being, um, you know, lukewarm, not being folks who, you know, are, are, are Sunday to Sunday Christians, um, uh, you know, let alone, you know, Christmas and Easter, but folks who, who, whose entire lives are wrapped up. This is, this is it. This is what it's all about. And you have it. And you've been given the gift of faith through your baptism through the, and, 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 and that, that faith and Holy Spirit remain with you to carry you through the good times, through the bad times, um, and are and you have a Lord who walks alongside of you all the days of your life, so that when when your trials, when your tribulations come, uh, you are not alone. When you feel unloved, you are you are loved more than any person in this world. When you are on death's uh, death's doorstep you know that you have nothing to fear because you have a savior who has already died and is risen and you simply die the small death uh, to, in order to, to, to meet him, meet him for your heavenly reward. So this is, it's hard words, but um, you know, Christ carries us through it all. He's the one doing the work and he's the one that ultimately gives all things for our good. Pastor Matt Wheatfelt is Director of Admissions and the Director of the Christ Academy Program at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us today with Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Pastor Wheatfelt, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure, Pastor Apple. Always a joy being with you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke 14 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.